I uh, I have an odd sense of déjà vu this morning. I, uh, Thirty years ago, uh, 1978, in August, Carolyn and I moved uh, to Idaho, and September the 1st, I joined the staff here at Cold Community Church, and believe it or not, my first Sunday here was the first uh, uh, first Sunday of the of the month, and I did an overview of the book of Genesis. And the second Sunday of the month, I taught Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4. How weird can you get? <clears throat> I, I should uh, say for the comfort of those of you that were here 30 years ago, this is not the same message. <laughs> Our text is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, and I want you to go away with one idea, and it's the... It's a sentence, actually, that occurs the, the very last uh, line of Dante's Divine Comedy, that it is God's love that moves the sun and all the stars. That's my goal this morning. Now, the next time you find yourself out in the sawtooths or in the Awahis at night and away from the bright lights of the city, and if it's a moonless night, look up, and what you'll see stretched from horizon to horizon is a resplendent uh, band of stars. It's our Milky Way. Uh, it's been called the Milky Way for centuries. Uh, the Greeks called it Galacticos, which is just a Greek word for milky white, and of course that's the word from which we get our word uh, galaxy. Now, those stars there in the sky are our galaxy. Our local galaxy is a massive, flattened, rotating disk about 80,000 light years in diameter. Now, uh, you may remember from your general science classes in uh, elementary school or, or secondary school, the light travels at a velocity of 186,000 miles a second. Traveling at that speed, you can orbit the Earth eight times in a second. You can travel to the moon in a little less than three seconds. But traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it would take you uh, 80,000 years to traverse our galaxy. Now, if you have very good eyes... You can see about 6,000 stars in our galaxy, but there are far more objects that we cannot see with the naked eye. There are actually about 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Now, if you, were start, if you started to count, it, count stars tonight and you counted as rapidly as you could count, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and you counted 24-7 uh, without taking a break to eat or sleep or do anything else, it would take you about 500 years to count up to 400 billion. That's just our own galaxy. In 1995, two astronomers from, from Baltimore bought 100 hours of time on NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. That's that telescope in, in space. It's in low orbit around the Earth above the distortion caused by, by our atmosphere. And uh, they're able to see through that telescope things they've never seen before. It's very expensive, of course, to buy time on that apparatus. But these two astronomers bought 100 hours of time to look at nothing, basically. They trained that telescope on one spot in the northern uh, sky, just above the Big Dipper, a little 
spot about the size of a tennis ball from 100 yards away. And they did what, what came to be called the Hubble Deep Field Study. It was kind of a core sample of the universe. And hour by hour, they took pictures uh, out into space. And remember, this is an area where they have, had never seen any stars before, nothing out there. They counted over 3,000 galaxies during the 100 hours that they had that telescope in their hands. And there are far, far many that they never uh, reached. They now believe that the number of galaxies is just incomprehensible. There are probably trillions and trillions of galaxies, each of which contains billions and billions of stars. Uh, the number is simply incomprehensible. The analogy that's often used is, is that there are probably more than 400 stars for every grain of sand on the earth. George MacDonald says, Gloriously wasteful art thou, Lord. And I have to ask uh, the question, what's all that space stuff out there for? What's it doing in the, in the cosmos? Who put it there? And what is it for? Those are the questions that I want to answer from our text this morning. Now, the first question, how did the cosmos come into being? Uh, Moses puts it very simply. In the beginning, God created the universe. Uh, our questions are often very complex, the answers to which are often very simple. And this is a case in point. How did the cosmos get there? In the beginning, God created the heavens. He created the universe. Uh, that verb created is used uh, very seldom in the Old Testament, very sparingly, and always with God uh, as the subject. Man is never the subject of that, of that verb because it essentially means to make something out of nothing. As theologians that love to use Latin terms say ex nihilo, which is just a Latin word for out of nothing. Something out of nothing. And that's what the word is here translated created uh, many of you know it's the word bara in the beginning god created something uh, out of nothing he created the cosmos i should point out uh, one of my favorite verses in in the old testament is isaiah 51 because that's one of the rare places where that verb bara occurs in another context there david says create in me a pure heart and Knowing the condition of my own heart and the level of purity there, he is always operating from nothing to something. Now, um, I have to say that that statement, in the beginning God created the heavens, is a faith statement. That's not a scientific statement. Genesis 1 is not a scientific document. It's a theological document. It's a religious document. And it tells us something that we could not otherwise know. It, it gives us the answer what the New Testament writers call a mystery. That is something that can only be known through revelation. Science can neither prove nor disprove the fact that God created the earth. That's not what science is for. They're limited in certain capacities. Science is a wonderful thing. It's done some marvelous things for us, and it's... Twin sister technology, my goodness, what would we do without cell phones and iPods? And, but also, you know, the marvelous advances in, in medical technology and, and the other good things that we have these days that, that are the result of science. I honor science, but science is limited. It can only go, go so far. Science does not have 
universal adequacy. To say that it does is scientism, not science. That's the worship of science. Science can't measure virtue, for example. There's no such thing as, uh, you know, a yard of justice, uh, justice or six feet of love or ten pounds of uh, courage. Those are, those are, that's a confusion in categories. Science has its place, but it cannot speak about ultimate origins because it has to do with the observable and no one was there to observe in the beginning. Some of you may remember Carl Sagan. He's, he's dead now, but he was an astronomer at, at Cornell University and um, quite well known. He had a, had a TV program called Cosmos that I used to greatly enjoy. And he, used to make a statement every once in a while. I heard him say it more than once. The cosmos at all, is all that is, all that was, and all that ever will be. In other words, there's nothing more than matter and blind chance. Nothing more. Nothing transcendent. No spirit. No, nothing immaterial. No God. He was an atheist. Now, with all due respect to Dr. Sagan, when he made that statement, he moved out of his office in the science department at Cornell, and he went down the hall to the religion department. That's a philosophical statement. That's a religious statement. That's what philosophers call a first principle. You can't prove or disprove a first principle. You simply choose it. And that's what we do as Christians. We believe this is a, a, a divine revelation, that God is telling us something. We could not otherwise know that in the beginning God created the heavens. That's our credo. That, that's, that's our belief or creed. Now, um, this, according to Moses, was in the beginning. Actually, it's just one word in Hebrew, Bereshit. So, actually, it's one clause. In the beginning. When was that? Well, if you, you know, some of the older uh, versions of the Bible, if you look in the margin, you'll see a date for creation of 4004 B.C., which would make the earth about 6,000 years old. Um, that date was the result of computations by uh, uh, a man named Usher, Bishop Usher, an Anglican bishop, James Usher, who lived in the 17th century, who believed on the basis of the fact that there were six days of creation that, there would have, that the earth would continue for 6,000 years. He based that on, on Peter's statement that a, that a day is like a thousand years in God's sight. So he believed that the earth would continue for 6,000 years. He lived in the 17th century. The world was going to rack and ruin. He figured it could really only last a few more hundred years. And so he concluded that the end of the world would be in 2000 A.D., extrapolating back. The earth was created in, 6, in 4,000 B.C. or 4,004, according to his Gregorian calendar. Now I ask you, was the earth created 6,000 years ago? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. All the Bible says is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, uh, let's take another look at it. Back in 1929, the man for whom the Hubble Space Telescope was named, Edmund Hubble, was looking on the space and his telescope at that time. And he came to the conclusion, it's since been uh, demonstrated that he was accurate, that our universe is expanding, <clears throat> that space is expanding like a balloon that's being blown up, and that, that every galaxy uh, is moving away from every other galaxy at a rate proportionate to its distance from the center. In other words, it's accelerating as you go out into, 
in, into space and, and working backward through time, knowing the velocity of, of the galaxies and knowing how much, uh, how far away they, they were, he came to the conclusion that creation occurred, that it started as a, as a, as a very dense, hot mass at, of matter at one time in the center of the universe that exploded, a big bang, they call it, and it's been inflating ever since. And he dates that big bang at 13.6 billion years ago. Was that when the earth was created? I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. Moses saw fit to not tell us exactly the date. He, he just tells us that it was in the beginning. I, just as a, I'm not a scientist, but from a layman's standpoint, looking at uh, the rock structures and rates of sedimentation and so forth, I, you know, it seems to me like the earth is very, very old. If it's not old... It's been created with the appearance of great age, and I can't really understand why God would do that, that sort of thing, but I simply don't know because God does not tell us. I, I told you years ago about my encounter with an elderly uh, philosopher. I was a young uh, theological Turk, and I decided to take him on and, and he had, with his little granny glasses, and he takes them off, and he looks at me, and he says, David, we must not make definitive what God has made ambiguous. And I've never forgotten that statement. Let's be sure of what the Bible says and let's stick to what it says factually. And where the Bible chooses not to give us information, let's not be definitive. Is this a recent earth? I don't know. Is this an ancient earth? I don't know. Because that's not the point of this passage. There's an entirely different object in view as, as, as we shall see. Now, um, God created the heavens and the earth. The picture I get is uh, somewhat like a Ken Burns documentary where the cinematographer pans the, the, the uh, cosmos and then focuses in on the third rock from the sun. And we're going to see how the earth now came into uh, being. Uh, uh, who who can, can forget Apollo 8? You know, those first shots from space when astronaut Bill Andrews took those beautiful pictures of the earth, the one that you saw here on the screen earlier. You see it on Earth Day posters and on iPods and Macintosh computers. You see it everywhere. That beautiful blue ball with the backdrop of a jet black, uh, of jet black space. How, you know, it was gorgeous. Anders said it was the only color we saw anywhere in the universe. Everything else was gray and black, but not the earth. It was a beautiful ball hanging in space. How did it get there? Well, uh, uh, let's see. You remember, if you remember from your uh, general science classes, again, that our, our planetary system has eight or nine planets, depending on what you do with poor little Pluto. And uh, uh, the, the, the four internal uh, planets, or Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Okay? So let's, uh, let's decide which one of these we, we want to live on. If we were we were choosing a habitat. Um, what about Venus? I mean, after all, women are from Venus. Must be a <laughs> wonderful place. It's our morning and evening star, as we call it. It's not really a star. It's a planet, but that's the way we've designated it. It's a bright, beautiful object out there. First thing we see at night, first thing we see, last thing we see in the morning. That might be a nice place to live. Well, uh, the surface is... Uh, fairly constant 900 degrees Fahrenheit, 
the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. The clouds are sulfuric acid, and when it rains, it rains sulfuric acid. It would be like living in a self-cleaning oven with the thing turned on. <clears throat> and every 30 minutes, someone would uh, open it up and spray you with oven cleaner. <clears throat> not, a, not a good place to live. Well, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth. How about Mars? Men are from Mars. Guys ought to enjoy it there. Well, it's too cold. There's a couple of ice caps and top and the bottom, you know, and all the moisture is now uh, frozen at the poles, and it uh, stays below uh, below zero. Not a, not a nice place to live. I, the Mars Pathfinder, just as you know, went went by Mars and took pictures of it. It's just this kind of reddish colored landscape, a lot of rocks and dust. Featureless, no clouds, you know, no, no water. Probably water there at some time. Had to be because the polar caps, but but no water there now. It's a dreary place to live and very cold all the time. Too far from the sun. What about the Earth? Well, it, you know, it's kind of a Goldilocks story. It's just right. It's just right. Eh? Just just right distance from the sun. Has the right atmosphere. Is all the arrangements that 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 make human life possible and enjoyable. How did it get that way? What follows is how that beautiful blue ball was made. Now, I am not going to go through the days in detail. Uh, this is a lengthy text, and I don't have time to do so. But I want to make five observations about this chapter, and then I want you to go home and read through the passage and simply think about it in the light of these observations. And please think it out on your own. These are, this, these are my thoughts. I almost feel like saying what they always say on NPR, you know, the opinions of the speaker are not necessarily those of the management. I don't know what the elders here or the teachers here believe, and they're perfectly, they should feel free to correct me next week, but, but this is what I believe. And let me simply toss it out there for your thoughts. Number one. That phrase, let us, catch it, caught my attention uh, this last week as I was thinking about this, this passage. It's, uh, you know, I believe it, that God is a trinity. He's three in one. And I believe that he's musing within himself, perhaps as a trinity and as the one God. But he's, he's thinking to himself, let's make light See, the thought comes to him first. Let's make light. And then he speaks, and it comes into being. That's the process that's described, that formula all the way. Let us, and then he says, let it be. So it begins with a thought, and it becomes a word. It's the logos, which is, first of all, the mind, the intelligent mind, and then the thought that comes out of the mind, and then the word, the word than an accent, because logos means uh, all three of those things. C.S. Lewis captured the process uh, wonderfully in one of his Narnia tales, uh, The Magician's Nephew. Uh, the children, uh, Polly and the other children, hear Aslan walking back and forth, and he's singing. Aslan, as you know, is the figure of Christ in, the, in, in Lewis's uh, Narnia tales. Polly was finding, her, uh, finding the song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. 
When a line of dark fur sprang up on a ridge about a hundred yards away, she felt that they were connected with a series of deep, prolonged notes which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked around, you saw them. Now that seems to be the process as described in Genesis 1, that our Lord made up things in his head, things that had never existed before, and then he spoke them or he sang them into existence. Uh, C.S. Lewis is working off an ancient idea, a medieval idea, that, that song was the first language and that poetry is corrupted song and prose is corrupted poetry. And it may well be that our Lord sang the universe into existence. God muses and then he makes up the cosmos in his head and he speaks it into existence. Now there, there are three occurrences of that verb create, as I mentioned before, bara. It occurs in the creation of matter in verse 1, in the, in the creation of life in 23, and the creation of Adam in uh, 127. By the way, the Hebrew word Adam or Adam simply means uh, mankind or humankind. It's uh, uh, generically neutral. Um, There are three mysteries in science, the creation of matter, the creation of life, and the unique spiritual dimension of human beings. They have no answer for any of, of those three questions. How did matter begin? How did, how did, you know, either it was a steady state that it's existed infinitely and eternally, or it had to be created. How did it come into being? How did something become nothing? See, the, the, the current view of science is that we live in a closed system. No energy, no matter is coming in from outside. As a matter of fact, what, what's on the inside is, is, is degenerating. So something had to happen that science can't explain. And that's the creation of matter. The second thing is the creation of life. Scientists have been trying to create life for generations, but they always have to start with life because they can't create life out of nothing. And the third is the spirituality of man. How do you explain the un- un- our unique qualities as human beings that we, look, we write poetry, we write symphonies, we write sonnets, we, you know, we, we think about good and evil, we, we think about purpose in life, we wonder what, what is the meaning of life, we wonder about God, we wonder where we came from. Those are things that animals never, never think about. That's our spirituality. Now, I often sit on our back uh, patio and read. My, my old dog sits beside me and kind of stares off into space. She gets this kind of thousand-yard stare in her eyes. And, uh, you know, I, I keep th- wondering, I wonder what she's thinking about. You know, and I, and I ask her, a penny for your thoughts, and she doesn't say anything. But I tell you what she's not thinking about. She's not thinking about the meaning of life. See, that, that's a property that belongs to us, and that's a result of our spirituality, and that's something that science cannot explain. For all the good things that science can do, they're simply flying blind on that, on that uh, issue. Uh, the third observation is that God creates and calls it good. Now, in certain contexts, that word good means beautiful. It's the Hebrew word tov. 
for Sarah, for example. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was said to be the most beautiful woman in the world. She was, she's described as very, very tough, very, very good. That is beautiful. And I think in this context, in the creation context, we have to look at it that way. God creates light, for example. He thought it up, and he created it, and he backed off, and he says, Oh, that is beautiful. I love that. That's gorgeous. That's, that's the thought that's behind that word, uh, the word good. By the way, the only day that said not to be good was Monday. True. Probably the origin of Blue Monday. Uh, no, actually, it's because the earth wasn't quite ready yet, but, or complete yet, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, let me say a word about the days of creation. And th- this is kind of a landmine, but I'm going to tell you what I think. No, I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what to think. No, I'm going to let you think it out yourself, okay? <laughs> is this, are these literal 24 hour days, or is this uh, uh, a literary. Uh, figure of of speech, a poetic image. Now, I'm going to leave that with you. I don't really want to go there and answer that question, but I want to point out three or four things that I think are significant. Number Number one, day in the creation story is used three different ways. It's used of daylight, a 12-hour period of, of time. It's used of the whole creative process in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. And then finally, it's used of a 24-hour day. So whether it's literary or whether it's literal, I leave that with you to work out. I would say that God's normal way of operating is through process. He's the hidden God. He, he, he is not inclined to intrude in nature. He sets up natural process, and then he works through natural process. Uh, he's still working. Jesus said that. I work and my Father works. The rest of God is, is a theological concept. We, we may or may not get to that today, but, but, but God is still at work. And he's still working through natural process to create mountains and you know, to shift the continents around and, and to bring into being uh, pansies and, and uh, 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 geraniums. And, and he's still, you know, cats and dogs are still being born. He's working through that, through that, uh, through that process in order to accomplish uh, creation. Uh, on one occasion, he turned water into wine immediately. He certainly can do that. He can work instantaneously. But the normal process is for the earth to drink up the rain and then the roots to pull the rain into the plant, produce the grape, which then is, uh, begins to ferment and creates wine. So that... It's, the, it's normal for him to operate through, through process. G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote in his book, Orthodoxy, it's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be uh, automatic, automatically, uh, automatic, it may not be automatic necessity that, ma- that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. The repetition in, in nature may not be a mere reoccurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. Oh, I love that. It's possible that every new emergence, you know, every pansy, every blade of grass, every butterfly, every blossom, every billowing cloud is a new and special creation invented out of God's wisdom, excitement, and artistry. God ponders 
every act of creation and the whole business that begins all over again. The business of creation that began in the beginning and is still going on uh, today. Uh, there's a hymn that's been in the church for 80 years or more, but it was uh, recently sung by Cat Stevens. Morning has broken like the first morning. Blackbird has spoken like the first bird. Praise for the singing. Praise for the morning. Praise for them springing fresh from the Word. God speaks and they spring from the Word. Mine is the sunlight. Mine is the morning. Born of the one light. Eden's, uh, Eden saw play. Praise with elation. Praise every morning. God's recreation of the new day. In other words, every morning is like, like the first morning. Every bird that sings is like the first bird that sprang into song. Now, uh, the, my fifth observation is uh, in verse 2, that Moses established the conditions against which the creation of, of the earth is cast. It was without form, and it was void, that it was shapeless, and it was empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the rest of the chapter elaborates on that theme. How did God dispel the darkness? How did he bring shape and form to the earth? And finally, how did he fill it with plants and, and seeds and bushes and trees? And then he put the birds in the sky and he put the fish in the sea and he put the beasts on the land and he created us, so that, that all of it is against that backdrop of, of first darkness and then light that dispels the darkness and then an empty shapeless earth and he shapes it and forms it and makes it a proper habitat for us and then he begins to fill it with all the things that beautify the earth and that draw our eyes and fill us with delight and then last but not least he creates us with the capacity to enjoy it all. Now, I don't have time to go through the days. Uh, I'm going to let you do that on your own. Let me say that Moses' conclusion in Genesis 2-4 is this is the history of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the thing that's significant about this verse is that first, for the first time we have the personal name for God introduced. Who is the God who did all of this, who flung the stars in space, who created all the, the birds and beasts and the rocks and the rills? Who did this? My God, your God, our God did it. The Lord uh, God. Now, I'm not going to say anything more uh, about that. I just want to talk for a moment about the purpose of creation. What is it for? What purpose? I mean, you look, you look out in space, and there's all this space stuff out there. What is it for? And you look all around at the beauty around us. What is it there for? Well, let me tell you quite simply, it's for you. And it's for me. It's ours. It was given to us. Some, you know, sometimes I drive by a beautiful spot on a lake, and I think, my, wouldn't it be nice to own a cabin there? And I'm reminded that I don't need to own a cabin there. The whole universe is mine. God has said that. He's given us everything for our enjoyment, for our delight. When uh, uh, the folks in Corinthians uh, were 
squabbling about uh, who owns what. And they had uh, sort of this mentality that what, what's mine is mine. Paul writes to them and he says, everything is yours. Why are you jealous for this person or that person or this position? Everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the cosmos, it all belongs to you. C.S. Lewis puts in Aslan's mouth, Creatures, I give you the woods, the fruits, the rivers, I give you the stars, and I give you myself. It's all for us. Now, I understand it's a fallen universe. Uh, Jackson talked about that last week. The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Nature is red in tooth and claws, Tennyson said, and shrieks against the, our creed that God that God loves us. But there's still so much of beauty. I mean, it's not it's fallen, but it's not totally ruined. There's still an enormous amount of beauty. And what is it there for? It's for our joy. It's for our childlike delight. Uh, John Calvin wrote, If it be asked what cause induced God to create all things at first and now inclines Him to preserve them, we shall find out that there could be no other cause than His own goodness. You see, it's love that's behind the sun and all the stars. It's love that's behind creation. It's His goodness. Goodness is the point of creation. God created mountains and streams and canyons and polar bears and penguins and pandas and brook trout and dogs and cats for our childlike delight and for no other reason. They're given to us for our joy and simply because He loves us. Fall is right around the corner. I was up in McCall last week with Carolyn and the Quakies are starting to turn. The buckbrush is turning red. It's just gorgeous. Can hardly wait for fall. I just I love the colors of fall. Why why do leaves turn all those colors in the fall? Well, there's there's a perfectly natural explanation. Any scientist can tell you. Any botanist will tell you that uh, it's because chlorophyll is is green. It's a green pigment, and uh, it's found in leaves and uh, it absorbs red and blue colors, so that what you see is green. Chlorophyll is a very unstable substance, and it tends to break down rapidly. So the tree has to work like crazy all summer to build up more chlorophyll. does it through photosynthesis, uses the sun to make chlorophyll. But in the fall, as days shorten and there's less sun, the tree can't keep up. So the chlorophyll breaks down, and the other pigments in the, in the leaves, keratin, for example, in, in uh, quakies and, and willows, aspens and you know those kinds of trees, poplars, they turn yellow because they, the pigment in, in their leaves is is yellow. And uh, maples and sweet gums have sugar, a lot of sugar, and it breaks down the enzymes in the in the leaves, so you get orange and yellow and, and red and and purple. I mean, these gorgeous colors of autumn. But I ask you why? I mean, that that's a natural explanation. But I but I ask you why color? And why these photoreceptors in our eyes so that we can see color? It's for our childlike delight. It's for our joy. It's because God loves for us to be delighted. He loves to surprise us. That's that's why they're there and for no other reason. Peter Kraft, I'm, I'm 
with this, this I'm done. Peter Kreeft's one of my favorite authors. He's a professor of philosophy at at uh, Gordon uh, Boston College, a very prolific writer and a, and a very outspoken Christian. And he asked Job's, uh, God's question of Job, where were you when I designed your world? And then he answers in, in God's words. I'll tell you where you were. You were in the center of my vision. Now, you understand what he's saying? Where were you when God began to think up the world? You were in the center of my vision and at the center of my heart. I designed the universe for you, for your highest good and greatest joy, which is also my greatest joy and my greatest glory. My greatest joy is you, and your greatest joy is me. Your joy was the whole point of my banging out the Big Bang. Do you think I had stars in my eyes instead of souls? Do you think I am more glorified by burning hydrogen than by burning hearts? By big acts of supernova explosions and by little acts of love? You don't understand your life because you're not simple. The meaning of life to you is me, and the meaning of life to me is you. The beloved is always at the center of the lover's vision. That's what love means. I waited billions of years for you while the galaxies cooled. And those years were nothing to me because of my love. I was like Jacob waiting for Rachel. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. That's why a thousand years are as yesterday to me, because I am love. It is love that moves the sun and all the stars. What is the point of creation? It's love. It's love. And what is our response to loving back? To tell him thank you. To worship him. Uh, the philosopher and uh, poet uh, Simon Taylor Coleridge was uh, wrote an essay once about two uh, two tourists that were looking at a waterfall. One of them said it's pretty, and the other said it's sublime. Tennyson thought the first answer was silly. Second one was the only one that made sense because sublime means worthy of worship, of the highest possible value and worthy of worship. And that ought to be our response when we look around us at all that God has given to us. The only proper response is prayer and worship and love. Let's pray. We are staggered by our universe and the understanding that you did it all for us that you did not have stars in your eyes when you created, but you had our souls in mind. And we're so grateful. And we pray that everything that we see around us, no matter what it is, a flower, that we see every bush as a burning bush, every tree as a sample of your creative artistry and workmanship, and give thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.